Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 11. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11. And it reads, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us, be like, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-control. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-control, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. If you were a Christian living in Thessalonica in the first century, you might wonder about the fate of your Christian brothers and sisters who had passed away at the time that Christ returns. Would they miss out on all of the blessing and glory of that great event, the second advent? Or, if you were a Christian living in Thessalonica in the first century, you might wonder about the fate of Christians who were alive at the time that Christ returns. Would they get swept up in the chaos of the last days or uh, suffer from the outpouring of God's wrath on the dreadful day of the Lord? But you wouldn't have to wonder long because the Apostle Paul, who founded your congregation, who probably led you to faith in Christ, who at least preached the gospel that you came to embrace, the Apostle Paul... A few months after he left your city and went to evangelize in other places, wrote a letter addressing those things that you wonder about. In the letter that we call 1 Thessalonians, in last week's text, chapter 4, Paul addresses the first concern. No, he says, you don't have to worry about your deceased Christian brothers and sisters. They're with Jesus and they'll come with him when he returns. Nobody in the family of God, alive or dead at the time, need, uh, we don't need to worry about them missing out or having some kind of particular advantage over the others. Don't worry about that. And in today's text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul possibly is addressing the, the second concern. Those who are alive at the time of the Lord's second advent, the great day of the Lord, now you don't have to worry about them either because, well, I don't want to get ahead of my text. 
Let's finish the sentence by looking more closely at what Paul writes in this chapter. Verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, brothers, about times and dates, and that's an expression that simply means when. As to the when of what I was talking about in the last paragraph, as to the when in what I'm going to tell you about now in the following verses, you don't have to worry. In fact, when it comes to when, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well. Now I'm going to pause again right in the middle of the sentence. Why did Paul not need to write to them about this? How did they know very well what he's about to remind them of? Because in his ministry in Thessalonica, he had taught them about the second coming of Christ. Even though Paul was with them a very short time, possibly three weeks he thought that the return of the king was an important enough subject to include in his initial teaching ministry to these people who knew nothing about it. And that's worth pausing to note. Because there are some Christians who hardly give the second advent a thought. Now granted, there are other Christians who go to seed on this doctrine and almost act as if it's the only thing worth thinking about. They participate in end times chat rooms online. They speculate about the time of the Lord's return or the identity of the Antichrist and, and give very little thought to the here and now and what God might want of them in the present. And perhaps in reaction to that, other Christians hardly think at all about the Bible's words about the end times. They think only about the here and now, and that's a mistake. Because the future shapes the present. And what God has revealed to us in his word about the second advent and related events is supposed to make a difference in the way we live here and now. Now granted, uh, there's no point obsessing over uh, some of the details of Bible prophecy that are not particularly clear in the Bible. But God did give us this information for a reason. And if Paul thought it was important enough to include in his initial teaching ministry, right there at the beginning, then chances are pretty good that it's important for us to know what the Bible says about the end times. So let me back up and without interruption... Read from the beginning, verse 1. Now, brothers, about times and dates, about the when, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord... Well, I'm going to pause again. The day of the Lord, what's that? It's an Old Testament phrase that Paul borrows here to sum up what he's just been talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4 and what he's about to talk about in the lines that follow. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament was a time, not necessarily 24 hours, but a period in which God acted decisively in history to judge the wicked and to rescue his people. And in the way the prophets use the phrase, it's pretty dreadful, the day of the Lord, Dreadful, at least, for those who are unprepared, for those who are living in spiritual darkness. But for God's people, 
a great and glad day, the day of the Lord. And that's what Paul was talking about in chapter 4. That's what he's talking about here. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There's another phrase that Paul borrows. This time not from the Old Testament, but from Jesus. Our Lord himself, when talking about his return at the end of history, said that he would come like a thief in the night. And John the Apostle picks up on that in the book of Revelation. Peter the Apostle picks up on that and quotes Jesus in his second epistle, 2 Peter, as does Paul here. It's stuck with them. It's a vivid image, isn't it? And it's one that's relatively easy to figure out. A thief does not send you a postcard saying, I'll be at your house next Wednesday at 2 a.m. unless a better time works for you. Doesn't give you any advance warning. And Jesus will not hack into the world's computers and let everybody know, I'm coming in three weeks. You've been warned. Time to shape up. No, his coming will be a surprise. And for many, an unpleasant surprise. For those who are living in spiritual darkness, the second advent will be a disaster. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them. Now, pause again in the middle of a verse. We might puzzle over people saying peace and safety in the last days. Because when we read what the Bible says about the end times, we get the impression of worldwide chaos. Political, economic, military, social chaos, wars, Rumors of wars, famine, earthquakes, uh, celestial disturbances. And we might think that somebody living in those circumstances would not say peace and safety, but rather, whoa, we must be near the end. We better get our act together. We better repent of our sins and especially repent of the way we've been treating Christians. So how do we understand people living in the end times just before the return of Christ saying, everything's okay, nothing to worry about, peace and safety? I think there are a couple of explanations. One is that the so-called signs of the times that we read about in the Bible may very well describe the turmoil that is characteristic of the entire church age and not just the last few years. In Matthew 24, when talking about his return and the signs that would precede it, our Lord said, you'll hear about war. You'll be persecuted. You'll see turmoil, chaos, but, he adds, the end is not yet. The end is not yet. And it very well may be that in the very last of the last days, even when there is chaos, people will say, well, you know, there's been chaos for centuries. It's just like it's always been. 
and will talk like the skeptics that we read about in 2 Peter, who said, where's this coming that you've been talking about? Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So that's, that's one reason why people might be, even at the very end, saying, peace, safety. And another possible explanation is the human capacity to deny the obvious. The human capacity to convince ourselves that somehow everything will be okay. Noah took decades to build the ark, and he preached the whole time. Nobody listened. And so our Lord Jesus said that his coming will be kind of like it was in the days of Noah. People eating, drinking, going about normal business until the flood came and swept them all away. They somehow convinced themselves they had nothing to worry about. Jeremiah preached for decades. And even when the Babylonian armies were right outside the city walls, Jerusalemites preferred to listen to the power of positive thinking preachers instead and thought, oh, God would never let his holy city be destroyed. And they didn't repent. And peace and safety actually is a slogan that the Roman Empire used to let its conquered people know what they got in exchange for their freedom. Peace and safety. You can almost picture it hanging on posters at the local post office. Oh, true, you can't govern yourselves anymore, and taxes are high, but at least you get good roads, the Pax Romana, um, peace and safety. And there have been people in every generation who have been willing to look to strong government to guarantee their peace and safety. There may be a lesson here for American Christians in the 21st century. Chuck Colson, before he died, predicted after 9-11, the terrorist attacks on our country, that American citizens would be willing to forfeit freedoms in exchange for security, or at least the illusion of security. Colson may have been thinking of things like the security drama that we all go through at the airport. He probably could not have predicted the COVID drama of the last couple of years, the COVID safety drama. Now, I'm not trying to get political, and I'm not even, as some preachers on the end times like to do, suggest that the hour is 11.55 on the prophetic clock. What I am trying to do is show how it's possible that even when anyone with eyes in their head to see what's going on know that we're in deep weeds, could still say, it'll be all right. The government will figure it out. We look to Rome, Washington, Wall Street, the elites, to figure it all out, peace and safety. But while people are saying peace and safety, middle of verse 3, destruction will come on them suddenly. Like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. 
Now, some people think that the bachelor, Paul, should not have ventured into an area he knew nothing of. Didn't Paul realize that there's such a thing as false labor? Uh, Didn't Paul know that labor pains can stop and pause for hours or even days? Well, Paul doesn't make too much of this particular image. In fact, he drops it after verse 3 and goes back to the thief in the night. In any case, I... I think the point that he's trying to make is that when the labor pains come, even though you were expecting them, after all, you're pregnant, they still come as something of a surprise, and they mean that baby's going to come. So if the thief in the night image says something about surprise, unexpectedness, the labor pains on a pregnant woman imagery suggests something about inevitability. Jesus is going to come. Verse 4, but you, brothers, they will not escape, those living in darkness, for whom the second advent will be a disaster. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. (laughs) There is no time this morning to trace the biblical theme of light and darkness. To see with the psalmist that uh, in your light we see light. To be reminded, as Paul does in one of his other epistles, that God has rescued us out of the kingdom of darkness. And to see how in the Bible, we, God's people, are supposed to reflect the light of his perfect character. It's a great theme that we can't trace this morning. But just point out in this text that the people of the light will not experience the second advent in the same way as the people of darkness. For those who are in spiritual darkness, the second advent will be a disaster. But for people of the light, the second advent energizes hope and virtuous living. Verse 7, or verse 6 rather. Let's not be like others who are asleep. And in my mind I picture a something I saw online, a picture of a family around the television set. They're all sleeping. Mom and dad are asleep. The kids are sleeping. Even the dog is asleep. All lulled to sleep by that one-eyed God. And I'm afraid that that is actually a picture of some Christian families, just asleep to what's going on in the world, asleep to what God is doing and what God wants them to do. Jesus himself said, If the Son of Man comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. Let's not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. Some of you may have in front of you a more literal translation of the New Testament. The word self-controlled is the word sober. Self-controlled captures the the meaning well, but it's the word for being sober. Now, I I shared this story 
earlier in this year when I began uh, a season, a months of reflection on courage and living in light of the second coming. But it's worth repeating here because it fits the text and it fits, fits the Christmas season. On a frigid Christmas night in 1776, George Washington, along with 2,400 men and 18 cannons, were ferried across the frozen Delaware River. Um, this offensive took the Hessian mercenaries serving with the British completely by surprise. A British loyalist tried to alert the Hessians, but their drunken commander refused to interrupt a card game to receive the message. And as a result, more than 100 Hessian soldiers were killed or wounded, 1,000 taken prisoner without the loss of a single American life. but you're not Hessians. Let's be, Paul says, not like others, but let's be alert and sober. Keep our wits about us. Keep our eyes open. Act like people who are expecting the king to come back. Here's how Eugene Peterson paraphrases these verses. Friends, you are not in the dark, so how could you be taken off guard by any of this? You are sons of light, daughters of day. So let's not sleepwalk through life like those others. Let's keep our eyes open and be smart. People sleep at night and get drunk at night, but not us. Since we're creatures of the day, let's act like it. Walk out into the daylight sober, dressed up in faith, love, and the hope of salvation. Verse 8, we belong to the day. Let's be, there's the word sober again, or self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For, verse 9, here's some good news. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The second advent for those in spiritual darkness will be disaster, but the second advent for people of the life energizes hope and virtuous living because God did not destine you and me to suffer wrath. If you are in the dark, spiritually, unrepentant, not in God's family, one day, at the return of Christ, the wrath of God will fall on you. You are warned. But if you are one of God's people, if you are a child of the light, the wrath of God fell on Jesus at the cross. And you don't have to fear it. You don't have to worry about it because he suffered it in your place. Verse 10, it says, He died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Here Paul uses sleep, not as he did in verses um, 4 or 6 and 7, but in the way he did back in chapter 4, to talk about those who have died physically. So he's simply reiterating what he said back in chapter 4, that whether you are 
physically dead at the time or alive at the time of the second advent, you'll be resurrected or you'll be raptured, and so we will be with the Lord forever. That's what he's saying here. Jesus died for us so that when that time comes, whether we're asleep or awake, we may live together with him. The dead will be raised, the living raptured, and we'll be with the Lord together. In light of that good news, people of the light need fear no darkness. I was talking with somebody recently about the Lord of the Rings. And I mentioned that I, from time to time, use a sermon illustration from the greatest book ever written. And, uh, and that uh, now and then I might even say something like this. It's been a while since I've used an illustration from the Lord of the Rings, and everybody will laugh. Yeah. It's been a while since I've used an illustration from the Lord of the Rings. And, uh, and so I'm glad, actually, to find that I'm not the only preacher who does so. This is Tim Keller. He writes, The only time I ever faced death personally is when I had thyroid cancer. From the beginning, the doctors told me it was treatable, but still, I was going under anesthesia for the surgery, and I wondered what would happen. And you might be curious about what Bible passage came to mind. Well, true confession, what I thought of was a passage from the Lord of the Rings. It comes near the end of the book, the third book, when evil and darkness seem overwhelming. And here's what Tolkien says about Sam, one of the heroes. Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up from the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow is just a passing and small thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. So now for a moment, his own fate ceased to trouble him. Putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. And Keller adds, I remember thinking at the moment, it's really true. Because of Jesus' death, evil is a passing thing, a shadow. There is light and high beauty forever beyond its reach because evil fell on Jesus. The only darkness that could have destroyed us forever fell on him instead. It didn't matter what happened in my surgery. It was going to be all right. And it is going to be all right. Verse 11, Therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. You notice that the word encouragement includes the word courage. I've been talking a lot about courage over the last couple of years. I think God's people in this part of the world are going to need courage in the years to come, as perhaps we have not in the past. And I've said in bulletin blurbs that uh, Christian courage is hanging on an hour longer, a day longer, as we watch for the return of the king. 
It all comes together this month in this series on the second advent. And Paul says, encourage one another. Speak, so speak in sermons and in one-on-one counseling and in informal conversation and in the songs that you sing. Encourage one another. Build courage into each other. You know, Billy Graham said that courage grows. A courage is contagious, he said. When a man takes a strong stand, the spines of others are strengthened. (laughs) Encourage one another and build each other up, as in fact you're doing. How did Paul know that they were doing this already? Well, in chapter 3 of this letter, he says, I was concerned about you. I wondered how you were holding up under persecution. I wondered if maybe your newfound faith was wilting under pressure. And when I couldn't stand wondering any longer, I sent Timothy to find out how you're doing. And now Timothy has come back with a good report. Your faith is growing. You're persevering in spite of persecution. That's how he knew that they were already doing this. And he says, keep on keeping on, you people of the light. At a church in California, on a Sunday morning they had a blackout during the worship service. A car had hit a power pole and knocked out the power line, and for some reason the uh, emergency lights failed too, and there were approximately 3,000 people in the sanctuary and 1,000 children in a room behind the sanctuary. And the pastor was only, he says, about a dozen feet away from a door that led into that room, but it was so dark that it was hard to grope his way toward the door. When he finally found it and opened it, he saw that a mother had beat him to it. She had gotten to the hallway and had a Bic lighter. This happened before everybody had flashlights on their smartphone. Did I tell you I got a smartphone a couple weeks ago? (laughs) Now, I don't know how to use the flashlight, but (laughs) she had a big lighter, and it didn't light up the whole hallway, but it did at least give a sense of space and perspective. It was better than the pitch blackness. She was going to rescue her child. And little by little, other people found their way to the hallway with lighters, and some people found emergency flashlights in the drawers in the Sunday school classrooms, and some people went outside and turned on their car headlights and showed in the window. And by the time he was sure that the kids were all safe and he came back in the sanctuary, hundreds of people were waving their Bic lighters as if they were at a Beatles concert singing, Hey Jude! And he said even though it was fun and even though it was funny, Years later, he still remembers the tremendous power of light in the darkness, bringing hope and orientation to a dark place. For those living in spiritual darkness, the second advent is going to be a disaster. But for the people of the light, God energizes hope and virtuous living. Pray with me. Thank you, God, for this good word. Let it shoot adrenaline into our veins. Let us encourage one another. As I think the people of CCC are already doing, 
but especially in light of the return of the king. And in a world that does often seem to be getting darker, let us hold on to this great hope and let the future shape our present that we might live in such a way that when our Lord and Savior comes again, with the sound of the trumpet, the voice of the archangel, and the loud command that we heard about in last week's text, we'll be ready. In Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake, amen.